action. Welcome to Torn Stumps with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We continue our celebration of 21st century horror with Hereditary, Ari Aster's directorial debut. Grandma is dead. Her previously estranged model-making artist daughter Annie, played by Tony Collette, you're terrible, Mariel, is conflicted with her feelings (laughs) and this seems to be driving some sort of wedge between her and her husband steve played by gabriel byrne the family is thrown into deeper despair with an accident involving their teenage son peter played by the amazing alex wolf results in the death of the younger sister charlie played by molly shapiro things begin to take a turn down a strange path when a pensioner lovely way to describe her (laughs) jean befriends the trauma riddled annie Joshua, have you seen this before? <laughs> I'm, I'm still reeling from pensioner. I feel like she's still got a well, bit of um, a bit I of gumption, they, doesn't she? <laughs> she doesn't have a. She doesn't seem to have a job. She just seems to be defined by her age and the fact that her grandson and her son are dead. So she's a pensioner in my mind. Have you seen it before? Um, I have seen this film before, and I saw it on the day it was released. I was really excited about it because it was so hyped up so buzzed about it was the posters were screaming that it was like the best horror film since the exorcist or like the scariest horror film since the exorcist stuff like that um and so and i had i had friends in the industry who'd seen it and said it was unbelievably good so i was really sort of hugely hyped up for the film went to the peckinplex to see it and it was the worst viewing experience i've had in a long time (coughs) sorry i'm choking on my Um, tea (laughs) 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 well there was this there was this really weird phenomenon i'm not sure if it's just because often people go to see horror movies um expecting or the people who go to see horror films often are expecting like you know cheesy boo scares and stuff like that so they go along and, and kind of treat it as a bit of like an audience participation type thing um but I think that everyone I spoke to, all of my friends and people I work with who went to public screenings of Hereditary, all experienced people in the audience behaving extremely inappropriately. Um, and it just kind what of ruined doing? their experience of watching the film. And I had a similar thing. Well, well, one guy, one of my friends or kind of colleagues, he was at a screening and this guy came in and he must have... Um, either been extremely drunk or been taking some kind of drugs All right, grandma. because about 15 minutes into the <laughs> Pensioner film... Pensioner Joshua. <laughs> about 15 minutes into the film, <laughs> he started having some kind of um, episode where he started, like, screaming and, like, he... F- he um he was, like, throwing himself around in what the seat and then my Hello, friend went Simon. kind of... I don't... Something like, she's coming Hello, to get me or something. Simon. Like, something really weird. Was he screaming at the screen, <laughs> Peter! My name is Joe, I'm a pensioner. <laughs> Actually, that's weirdly exactly what happened. No, he was like, my friend went over to try and like help him. And this guy was like, his eyes were rolling back in his head and going, I, I can't see and all this kind of stuff. He was obviously having some kind know. of trip. Um, and another friend had a similar experience as well, which is just bizarre. We, me and Tom, my boyfriend went to see it. 
and we'd ha- we we made the mistake of going to see it on a day when it was like the last day of oh. school. So all these like teenagers were like coming out of school at one p.m. going to the cinema, and even though we were we entered the cinema when it was empty. People just kept sitting behind us and being really noisy. And it's like, how sociopathic do you have to be to come and sit behind people in an empty cinema screen? And it, it was just, by the end of the film, I was so stressed by people acting really um, terribly that I was, I felt, yeah, it was, it was basically awful. But did, it, did it impact um, your any enjoyment on the film? Yes, because I, I couldn't concentrate on what was going on. And the film is stressful okay. enough as it is without the people around you behaving so badly. Um, so, yeah, in a very long, convoluted way, yes, I'd seen it before, had you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to see it and I had this really weird episode where my eyes were lolling around and I couldn't see. <laughs> I couldn't see. I saw it at the Picture House Central and I really enjoyed the first half and I just thought the second half was a bit silly and that's how it was Mm. in my mind for a couple of years and then i think during lockdown one i watched it because it was on netflix or prime or one of the other streaming services there are many 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 and Mm. i just got it it everything clicked into place it Mm. just worked i think it is phenomenal i think it is such a genius piece of filmmaking everyone including ariasta is firing on all cylinders and this is his first yeah it's not his first script you know he he said that he'd written 10 other scripts before he did this one so he is very established but there's a difference between writing something and then actually manifesting it into reality so for yeah. him to direct this yeah. as his first feature film Credit where credit is due. He did his homework. Tony Collette said that she... And Tony Collette has worked with a lot of directors, by the way. She said that she has never worked with a director who was more prepared. She said that Ariasta had basically sort of made the film in his mm. head before he even shot a single second of footage. You know, he planned everything down to the nth degree. And I think sometimes that, that could be a... Um, you know, some something that would actually detract from creating a film because I think it it often has to be quite you know things change you have to think on your feet you know you have to sort of improvise um but I think in this case it's a film that is so specific in its vision that that kind of preparation really pays off if he's anything like me he'll prepare for 80 percent of what he wants and then there's a nice Mm. little 20 percent for creative wiggle room and that's where the fun yeah, happens. Yeah, like discovery exactly, as yeah. you go. Exactly, so, you know, when I'm on my shoots, I I can't just turn up and wing it um, and expect mm. to get the high-end results that I want. So I do my research, yeah. I plan, I prep, I, I need to know what lights I'm going to use if I am using lights, what's the story, morning glory. It's important. Mm. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that's the kind of, process that he has and it's very similar to his contemporary Robert Eggers yeah 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 I could definitely see a parallel between those Mm. two directors and also people like Rose Glass who did Saint Maud um, and people like uh, Jordan Peele who obviously did Get Out and Us they are of this group that has been called Elevated Horror and um, you can kind of see why because there is a level of artistry to it 
that is different to the kind of popcorn fare. Like if you look at horror films in 2018, there were a lot of franchise, you know, there's always franchise stuff going on, but overwhelmingly in 2018, we had a new Halloween, Goosebumps 2, we had new sequels for Hellraiser, Insidious, Predator, The Nun was part of the Conjuring verse, we had the Suspiria remake, but at the same time, we had films like Mandy, and we had films like um, a quiet place which is kind of somewhere in the middle of those those two extremes upgrade which i love which is lee wannell who did an invisible man and he's kind of of that he's not he's not quite sort of pure elevated but he's definitely more of a thinking person's genre he's got filmmaker, one foot in the say. blumhouse one foot in everything else yeah i think hereditary yeah, is the first time i heard the term elevated horror I think it was around that time it was really coined. I think because 2017 was Get Out. And so I think people were kind of searching around for a way to describe horror when they didn't really mean, you yeah. know, popcorn horror. And, that, and, you know, elevated horror as a, an idea has existed for as long as cinema has because you could, you know, you could argue that Kubrick did elevate, elevated horror. Plenty of filmmakers mm. have, have created the elevated Omen. horror. Rosemary's Baby. We just didn't... Yeah, The Omen. Well, back in the day, that was just exorcist. horror. Exorcist, yeah, it's... So I guess what they mean is yeah exactly that things was are horror. we didn't things have popcorn are moving fare. back towards more of a seventies um, aesthetic a seventies sensibility that's a better word yeah well because the seventies word was the filmmakers era wasn't it it was like the time when filmmakers really did rule and had their creative vision was sort of paramount um, and that's why the term auteur came around because they were trying to make them sound sort of more important than maybe they were <laughs> kind of auteur literally just means author but was it goddard who came up with it where he was like we're going to call ourselves auteurs now because that's how important we are so the first shot is of a tree house unless you watch it twice you won't get the significance that the film ends in the tree house then the camera mm. tracks and it mm. goes into a model house these great models that um, Annie is making and we actually realize that when we settle on the room inside this model house we're actually in the real house and it's Peter in bed and Gabriel Byrne is walking through the door Peter uh, you've become a pirate <laughs> but what does this symbolize yeah brilliant what an opening that it's just amazing because you mm. it's seamless and it's, it just works so brilliantly and it tells you immediately to expect the but unexpected. Also, I think it means that Peter's life is completely orchestrated. He is, he's just a puppet. Yeah. As if his life is being orchestrated by yeah. a model maker who creates their world. Yeah, and it, it gives this, this really sort of claustrophobic mm. feeling because it's like something outside of his control is clearly um, controlling him. And even like his environment specifically, like that environment feels so boxed in, you know, it's, it makes, it makes us feel enormous, you know, in terms of him. And the fact that they, that Ariaster, he basically wrote the, the script with that layout in mind. So they had to build all that on a, on a soundstage. Yeah. It's not a real house. Yeah. And they had to work the production designers had to work really closely with yes. the model makers because they needed it to be a, like a real, like a perfect match essentially. Yeah. And it really works. I think the first, the first shot that I really noticed, because clearly then Ariaster goes on to um, sort of frame 
the family house as if it is a doll's house. So, but there's specifically one shot of Annie, Tony Collette, when she, for the first time, she opens the bedroom door to the room where her mother lived and I think died in that room as well. And just that shot where you've got the doorway, you've got the bed and you've got maybe a a mirror on the wall or you've got something on the frame on the wall and it just looks like she's in a doll's house. It's so clever, really clever. It's like little Sylvanian family. Yeah, it's like Sylvanian families. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if they actually shot elements of the dollhouse with a macro lens. So when we actually cut to the real house, we're actually Mm. looking at a dollhouse in real life. It wouldn't surprise me if they'd done that. Yeah, I have no I I have no idea how cameras work, so I couldn't I was trying to figure out how they would have done that. But I guess it's all about sort of Yeah, just point it at the at the at the house. Surely it's like about the 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 eyesight level and the how much is fitted in the frame because if you look at the scene when they come home from the funeral actually there's quite a few scenes where they come in the front door and it's always the same shot shoes off socks off charlie take your shoes off. wet socks take your shoes off would you take your shoes off please (laughs) what did you think about that relationship between annie and her husband steve it's a pretty standard marriage they've been married for so long that i think they've grown apart (laughs) trapped together because they own a house they have kids um there's clearly a wedge maybe maybe something well you know the past is hinted at steve is the one that put the 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 no contact rule in place for the grandmother so that's why the grandmother was cast out of the family unit and it's only when Charlie was born that they, yeah. we, you know, they they got back in contact. So, Steve, so maybe Annie yeah. resents him a little for that, even though she knows her mother was a nutcase. Yeah, or she had DID. She, according to yeah, her, what is she, she DID? Had, um, dis, isn't it disassociate disasso- disassociative identity disorder? It's basically what we used to call multiple personality disorder, but I think that's not the uh, sort of correct term anymore it's did which is what the what james mcavoy had in split i think oh okay yeah where you kind of diso dis oh god with that word it's like dissociate yeah so it's like you separate you're internally separated from your identity and your your identity essentially can change oh. so that's what i think she says that her mother so has so the mother had multiple, and, i mean if we if we if we are accepting that the did isn't real are we accepting that she had multiple spirits in her yeah well because then there's a scene there's that scene later on where um we're led to believe that charlie has entered annie yeah um when she when she attempts to have the seance there's a moment where it's like is she now possessed by her dead daughter or does she also has she inherited it's called hereditary has she inherited her mother's did um there's yeah it's very clever the way it plays around with that and also annie talks about Annie goes to the most depressing i mean obviously it's gonna be depressing but like a grief circle meeting where she just suddenly un- unloads with this monologue yeah. that is just so so devastatingly bleak it's almost funny you know she talks about her family that it just sounds so awful um she talks about her brother who did he commit suicide and he thought that the um, mum had put people in him Yes, yeah. I think some of that is a 
is slightly clumsy exposition because you kind of would would Annie have said that or would she have said something less sort of you know loaded well I I took um, it as that she was literally unloading like maybe she'd been holding her breath she can't speak yeah. to Steve there's no way she can speak to Alex because Alex hates her or has some sort of fear yeah. of her because of the, uh, the, the the paint thinner incident and yeah Holly is dead yeah so every single time every single time Annie says anything she just kind of it just erupts out of her this sort of real this like pure trauma essentially it's it's like morbidly funny because it's just so awful you almost have to laugh like the dinner table scene halfway through yeah that fucking your face on your fucking face (laughs) (laughs) Tony Collette is phenomenal but I like that because I hate it when um I hate it I hate it when people suddenly become uncharacteristically um what's the word i can never remember this word sort of articulate i'm never i can never remember the word articulate because i'm not articulate i hate it when people in in moments of high emotion yeah. suddenly become uncharacteristically articulate so the fact that she's like you're sitting there with your fucking face on your fucking face it's brilliant because it's like yeah, it's yeah i get what you mean none of us none of us suddenly become yeah. erudite we can't answer questions like Stephen. yeah right we just we just go down to yeah the, exactly the, the basis of of language just like you stupid fucking cunt <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly charlie is is charlie fucked up because of the grandma um well because because annie says in her in her grief counseling session she says that's why i gave charlie to my mother because she she'd kept peter from her and so then when she had charlie i'm guessing that that's that's the reason that Steve and Annie have this really kind of separate life relationship. I'm guessing they had some kind of spat about the fact that the grandmother would have been like, I want to see my grandchildren. And Annie finally relented. And um, I think that's what she means when she says she gave her Charlie. But obviously she really means that grandma sank her claws into Charlie. To save Peter? To keep grandma away from Peter? Because that's what I would, um, that's what I read into that. I gave my grandmother yeah. Charlie to what? What do you mean you gave? What, to save Peter? To keep her claws off yeah. Peter? Which is really sad because it means that Annie has been trying to protect Peter and he just fucking hates her anyway. Well, you would. You'd be fearful of someone who sleepwalks and then covers you in paint thinner. Yeah. Like sleep murders. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I don't know. It, I feel like... The, I feel like Charlie is a really fascinating character because you, you're never really allowed to know her. You know, she's dead within 30 minutes. Yeah. She's this really enigmatic character where behaviorally she's she's sort of like, she's not like other people. Mm. The way she behaves is sort of normal, obviously, is not the politically correct term. She, has she, she acts in I a imagine. way... I think that's she, how it comes yes, across. Because she doesn't anyway. do her tests. There's a there's an there's yeah, the, there's a level of autism maybe. Yeah. Or Asperger's maybe. And the clicking sound that she does, is that because she does she do that sound when she's sort of like communing with this other world? Mm. Because she only really cl- clicks when she's like on her own, working on things, and there's like weird lights flashing around. Is that kind of a sign that she's 
she's still in contact with her dead grandmother essentially and is her is her dead grandmother kind of acting through her or is charlie from the moment she's sort of taken on by the grandmother as a baby is char does, does charlie as a human cease to exist and actually she has paimon the demon in her from birth or from that moment no i don't think she has paimon in because otherwise why would they need peter's body because the whole point is because well, they say they that need, they need peter's oh they need peter's healthy male body don't they They've, we've taken you out yeah of your, yeah your female form we've corrected we've corrected your gender or something she says yeah. at the end doesn't she yeah there's, i mean there's definitely there's definitely something going on with charlie because she doesn't jump when the bird hits the window so was she expecting it or has she seen this kind of thing before mm. is she that accustomed to it that a bird flying quite hard into a window that kills it not kills the window kills mm. the bird um doesn't doesn't <laughs> doesn't scare her doesn't make her flinch or jump and then she just casually cuts the head off and she, you know she didn't take those scissors mm. to school the bird hit the window then she spied the scissors knowing almost knowing that oh, na- yeah. i need to cut the head off premeditating so how am i gonna Oh, I should get those scissors. But there's also a suggestion that the bird only flew into the window because she was pissed off because the teacher said to her, stop playing with your stuff and let's finish your test. And the second she's like, okay, bam, that's when the bird hits the window. So it's almost like she caused it to happen. She's playing with a, she's making like a little model, isn't she? Which then shows up at Jean's place later on. It's Peter as as Paimon or her as Paimon. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. doesn't seem unnerved by the old woman sitting down at the bottom of the hill next to some fire. No, that that's the thing is like she's almost she's almost got sort of this this sort of devil spirituality or the occult. She's got the occult existing, coexisting with her around yeah. her almost at all times and just nobody else can see it. Yeah. When Peter is sat in the driver's seat after the accident, why doesn't he look round? Hmm. Yeah, well, there's it is. I don't know if it's inspired by the story from 2004 about two friends who were driving home drunk from a party, and basically the exact same thing happens where his friend shoves his head out the window to be sick and then it gets knocked off by a telegraph pole. And his friend actually drove home and went to sleep. Um, Ari Aster knew that they were both completely wasted. Oh, really? I've I've, I've heard interviews with people saying that he it's based on a story that happened. Uh, of people that he knew from his town or from his school or something like that. Oh, wow. There's a connection there somewhere. But that doesn't explain why Peter doesn't turn around because this is Ariasta writing. But that's no, but Peter yeah. not to turn around. No, that's really interesting because that adds a whole other layer to that kind of like the fact that Annie then goes to create a model of her of her daughter's death yeah. and it's like Ariaster is creating a film based on these people that he knew and he's do, he's processing his own trauma yeah. in the same way that Annie is processing hers that's really interesting actually but yeah so i mean peter just he's in total denial isn't he he's in shock and denial so he just doesn't turn around because if you don't turn around you don't have to confront literally what you've done. So you think if he if he looks then what he suspects will be real. Yeah, exactly. And I love the fact that when when it's um discovered by Annie and Steve when the body is discovered in the trunk of the back of yeah. the car, we don't see their reaction, we only see Peter's we reaction. We hear her though. My god. We hear her, yeah. Oh my god, That's yeah. Trauma. The, this is the that's the thing about this film. I find this 
watching it a second time I found it really really difficult to watch and afterwards I was in a really bad mood <laughs> and it kind of really like really plunged me into quite a despairing mood for the rest of the day to then go and watch Midsommar instead <laughs> it was just brilliant because its depiction of grief and trauma is so realistic it stops being it's you know Ariasta said that it's not necessarily a horror film until the second half but and I think that's true because the depictions of grief have no place in a horror film Mm. they're they're so true to life they're so upsetting that it's reality it's not horror you know but it's the re it's the horror of reality yeah yeah so it's a different kind of horror to to a horror film I guess that's why a new term had to be coined, elevated. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that's the thing is it's, it's I think that's why it became, no, it became known as elevated horror because for the, for the, you know, mass market horror is fun. It's, it's about boo scares and teenagers having sex and getting drunk and dying. And it's, it's kind of like a fun experience. Fun at, yeah, having fun at the cinema. You go because you want to be yeah. scared in a, in a familiar way. Mm-hmm. That's it. They want to scare you. So, but elevated horror doesn't necessarily. Its its sole purpose isn't to scare you. It's actually, its its sole purpose is to explore something more thematic, something deeper, something more disturbing, which, as a byproduct, is scary. So, I think that's the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's why because this the... film can be traced back to the shining because that that sums up the shining yeah it 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 sort of it's more insidious without being insidious insidious. (laughs) (laughs) it creeps it creeps into you it's like it settles in your mind and it stays there and then you find yourself still thinking about it you know i was waking up in the night last night just as you do and just suddenly thinking about hereditary and going nope nope let's not think about that let's just go back to sleep was the um was the road accident coincidental was it an accident was it planned right because on the telegraph pole is the symbol of paimon does that mean that Anne dowd has as joni this the you know the spiritualist kind of uh, pensioner as you called her um has she has she orchestrated everything has she planned this out like how did she kind of or one of her followers or one of the grandmother's followers yeah. make make that mark on the telegraph pole in order for Charlie to die. It's obviously premeditated in some way. And why would you choose for her to die like that? Why wouldn't you not choose? I like surely the nuts allergy is enough. Well, she needs to have a head removed. There's a lot of head removing in this film. Oh yeah. So the head has to come off. The head has to come off because the the. The icon yeah. on the telegraph pole is the same icon that's around grandma's neck on the chain. Yeah. And then it's burnt into the wall or written in blood on the wall when they find grandma's and it's beheaded. On the it's on the doormat. It's when they find grandma's beheaded body in the attic. Yeah. What is it about that? Is, it, is that something to do with like losing your mind, losing your identity? What is it? Why do the heads keep coming off? Maybe it may be an identity thing because... It's either Steve or Annie that says, my mother or your mother's corpse is in the attic. At least I think it's your mother or my mother because the head is gone. So obviously it's easy. You know, when when you go and identify a dead body, they don't 
they don't show you the feet they show you the face <laughs> yeah so without the face how would you know who it is is it separating mind and body because there's obviously the, like this very um foregrounded um sort of portrayal of madness like essentially i guess the idea of madness so the mind is is that is i guess the head and then the body so if you separate the two what happens but also maybe there's a, the idea that if you're wanting to appoint a new king generally mm. the one that you are wanting to kick off the throne you behead uh. in a very you know medieval biblical sense Mm, that's interesting but it layers into it again the idea that this is all this is all inevitable it it, it was fate it, mm. it there was no there was no possible way it wasn't going to happen so either it's mm -hmm. as simple as pensioner jean doing this in her spare time Joni. is it Joni or jean it's Joni. is it Joni? i thought it was jean no it's joan joan but she's got Joni on her uh, on her doormat. Yeah, maybe she maybe that to kind of soften her and make her seem less threatening. Maybe it's like an American thing where they, if people are called John, they just call them Jack for short, even though it's the same amount of letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, or like Robert and Bob. Bob. Yeah. Um, either she's doing this in her time off, or the spirits are doing it. The <laughs> spirits are orchestrating. They're pulling. They're pulling the strings somehow. Yeah, because you you well actually you see. Um... The, all the people who, like the cult members at the end, they're all in the rest of the film. Yeah. You just don't necessarily notice them. So like the guy who stands in the doorway smiling, he was at the funeral. Yeah. And the the friend, when Peter has the panic attack underneath the bleachers, one of his stoner friends with the top knot, he's in the hut at the end. So he's also part of it. So it's almost like all these little minions um, working around them busily all the time, kind of tweaking and tuning and making sure things happen the way that they want them to. It's very effective. Just like, and like when... Um, just like Rosemary's Baby, just like Devil's Advocate. Yeah, yeah. It's very... It it's feels so suffocating. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so like, insidious. Has, Peter has no agency. He's not allowed to control his life. No. He just doesn't know it. Who does Annie blame for Charlie's death? Oh... Yeah, I know. Well, she blames him. She blames Peter. But then he turns it around and says, well, you made her go to the party. Which at the time you are kind of thinking, why is she trying to get a 13-year-old to go to a party with a bunch of 16, 17-year-olds? To make friends. And clearly a teenager. To make friends. Oh, but that whole sequence where... She's at the party. I've, I have felt that way. We've all felt yeah. that way. It's so heartbreaking where you're at a party. And no one's talking to everyone's you. Everyone's <laughs> cooler, older. No one even notices you exist. Yeah. You know, she's moving around the party completely invisible. She goes and gets a drink. Once she gets the water, oh my God, it's just heartbreaking. I feel she got yeah. some cake, so swings and roundabouts. She got some lovely cake. Yeah. It's just so upsetting. I don't even think Annie knew she blamed Peter until when yeah. Joni's at the window of her car and she says, my daughter was killed and it catches her off guard. Like she hadn't even mm. outwardly considered it. It was just an internal mm -hmm. base knowledge that my son, I mm. believe that my son killed my daughter. Yeah. And one, he went one step further. He didn't even tell no. them or anything. He just went she to bed. Had his shoes on, <laughs> weirdo. Yeah. 
I think she blames him, but then he turns it around on her and she can't accept that she perhaps played a part in it as well and that she kind of is... It's I do love that title, Hereditary, because it kind of all becomes clear, you know, that her... Was it her brother who was called Charlie or her father it who was, was the, called the, the Charlie? The brother, yeah. It was the brother. Yeah, so her mother... Her mother had tried to do this with her own yeah. son, Annie's brother, and clearly completely neglected Annie and had no interest in her whatsoever. And so that then fed into Annie's behaviour with her own children and kind of perpetuated this dysfunctional um, sort of family relationship. It's so like, <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. Here's a question. Who knocks over the blue paint? Mm. Yeah, because that's when she decides, she remembers the number, doesn't but she? And she goes to see Joni. Who knocks over the blue paint? Because she reaches for the orange and the blue just falls over by itself. Did you notice that? No. Watch it again. The blue just goes over by itself. Oh. Yeah. And she thinks that she did it. Because She's like, oh yeah, shit. Because Joni's number's right there. Because you would. I'm just loving how it's so layered with this idea that none of them are really in control and we're just it's almost like we're watching a repeat. And also when Joni is in the car park at the art store and she's like, Oh my god, Annie and you can see in the boot of her car she has the chalkboard in the car, so it's nothing to do with her grandson. Yeah. You know, it's actually she's just been to buy the chalkboard. It wasn't the one she used to talk to play around with her great grandson at all. That was a complete fabrication. Then why didn't Annie notice? Well, she isn't. She wasn't a complete state. You know, she, her mum was dead and her daughter was ki- had been killed. She was completely out of her mind. And she's got this pensioner doing her head in. <laughs> this pensioner who's just like, oh my god, it, I'm so okay. She reminds me of Annie Wilkes. Yes, absolutely. And Anne Dowd is great mm. because she's so likable. You just wouldn't ever... She's like um, she's like in Rosemary's Baby, where they're just lovely, lovely kind of like soft me. and warm, um, kind me. of elderly American woman, <laughs> just like Robert Gershenson. And so when they turn out to be the devil's, yeah. like, sort of hands or whatever, it's like, but, fuck, oh my God. And I love that they tell you that pretty much immediately because she's she spots the doormat and Joni is like, oh, you know, I guess I got it from a flea market or like something... Like that, where you are, you're told immediately yeah, that you she wouldn't knew necessarily her put it two and two together. Like, who, go on Etsy. There's a million fucking idiots no. like that making those shitty things. Yeah, I know. But yeah, it's really is a film that rewards multiple viewings because you you start to piece together all these little things. Why does Peter stay and help Annie with the séance? Is he reaching out? Is he kind of hoping that it will absolve him of murder? If he didn't really kill his sister, she is still around. It kind of it it takes it takes the blame, and she talks about blame in her in her other you know in her monologue at the, at the grief thing. She says, you know, I feel blamed. I feel blamed. So he feels like he feels he does feel responsible for. Well, you would, wouldn't you? For Charlie's death, and so if there's you a way, you would. Yeah, but absolutely, he... you would. See, I mean, I think he's being loyal to his mum. I think it's been Lord just one, but is there a little part yeah. of him, whether he knows it or not, that he believes? Because he's heard the clucking, hasn't he? Yeah. That was the other thing in the cinema. That Ugh. got ruined because everyone was going, 
throughout the whole film because they're all just teenagers being idiots. So um, obviously all, not all teenagers are idiots. But um, so I had, so when all the, the, the very few moments that the, the clicking happened that were like really fucking scary and intense and made you jump, that was ruined in my view, in my cinema viewing because the, the kids were doing it the whole way through the film. I, I thought there was more clicking in the film than there actually was. It only happens like three or four times. So when you watch in my it, view, it happened about time, 50 like, times. Is this the director's cut where they've removed the clucking? There's also like a slight parallel, I felt, between the way that Annie behaves and the way that the priest behaves in The Omen. Like, if you just dialed it down a little bit and were a little yeah. bit calmer, people might believe you more. Whereas she was like basically hyperventilating sort of um stream of consciousness trying to convince steve that all this stuff is going on and it's hilarious because um it just sounds completely insane and so you kind of think annie just like take a breath take a second find your center and then maybe (laughs) talk about this mad stuff calmly but she was possessed by that point wasn't she what do you mean because she well she'd done the seance and she'd done that low like oh yeah growling thing and and gabriel burn gabriel burn had to yeah throw, he had to throw a very glass of water water fucking glass of water on your water face. i'm not doing it water right. in her face so she's possessed so so there's the the don't hold my hand possessedness of it that's is that why she was so manic so is she possessed without knowing it like she still is conscious well that's but she that's, she is possessed that's an interesting question because a how does annie know to burn Charlie's sketch pad. Why why does she just think I need to burn this yeah. sketch pad? And then she gets set alight herself, so she has to put the fire out mm. on the sketch pad to put the fire out on her arm. But then later on mm. it's it almost feels like the the logic doesn't make sense because she then asks Steve to burn the sketch pad. And when he's like, Are you out of your fucking mind? I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not going to burn a fucking book. I'm not doing this. I'm going to call the doctor. Right? She Books then takes are the tag, throws it in the fire, and he sets on fire. So, A, why didn't mm. she get set on fire when she put the sketch pad in the fire for the second time? And B, did she know, or did whatever was inside of her, did the demon know that by asking Steve to put the sketch pad in the fire, he would be burnt up? So was she was she doing it with a mm. alter you know a, a, an alternative motive? I don't know. I don't know because it starts to get very um, sort of uh, you know that I that there's very little dialogue in the last mm. I would say half an hour of the film. There's sort of she has a few little outbursts, but it really is just sort of visual storytelling. You just have to follow Brilliant what you're being shown. Storytelling. Um, very yeah. very clever. Very efficient. You know the bit where he's in the classroom and he looks like Charlie and yeah, when he's like, got his hand horrifying. up and he's possessed, he's being he's being controlled. What a, phen- a phenomenal set piece because it, it's not an action film. These are the set pieces in the film, but it doesn't feel like they're doing this for the sake of having a beat in the film. It really is entwined into this shocking narrative. But mm. what a brilliant performance from. Alex Wolf, when his head smacks against the table and he wakes up and he screams, stands back and falls yeah. over. And he wanted to do that for real. He wanted to bust his nose for real. Oh, is he like a is he like a Sheila Booth? He likes to do shit for real. He likes to pull his own teeth out, get tattoos. Yeah. Ariasta like politely declined and 
got a, like a foam desk installed. <laughs> foam so, mm, desk. you know, this is just a movie. It's not real, um, Alex. It's, it's not real, Alex. Yeah. I don't know if she's real. possessed. I don't know because she... Then why else would she chop her head off? Yeah. I think she's possessed. But is she possessed by Charlie? So she's still got Charlie inside of her for ever since the seance. But Charlie doesn't have that sort of power. But Charlie couldn't, couldn't crawl across the ceiling and hover and levitate. Well, what? Um, but maybe now she's a spirit, she can. But when when Peter Peter jumps out the window, which yeah, I mean there were two bits I I thought was I don't don't see. It was like ah, naked old people jump out the window. The crying when he was like, oh, mummy. Oh uh, yeah, that I didn't yeah. like. And also jumping out the window. I get it. It's like a horror thing. Did it in mm. um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Someone is so possessed with madness that they just want to jump out. Right, so he, he jumps out, he dies. And then a shadow goes past him and the light mm. enters him. So I think mm. that's Charlie entering him. Yeah. But is that Pyman, is that Pyman filtering past him um, up to the attic where mm. they're going to be united? So was Pyman in the mother? Yeah, payment, whatever it is, payment. The pie man, the man who sells the, the pie pies. Man. Do you? Know I think that man? light, that light must be Pieman because you see it throughout the film, and he kind of like appears to various characters, like Charlie especially. Um, and it happens when Peter's in the classroom, and then his reflection kind of changes. So it, I think, yeah, I think it is like Pieman having a go. Then what's the shadow? I didn't notice a shadow. Watch it again when when you got the overhead shot of Peter lying face Peter lying face mm-hmm. down in the flower bed. Mm-hmm. A shadow goes by him. Then the light emerges, the little you know the orb of light, and then it settles in him. Is that because he dies? Is that his 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 soul, his own soul leaving kind of thing? It does, but it doesn't look like it's coming out of him. It looks like it's coming uh, past him. Is it not just somebody walking towards the hut? <laughs> Somebody's just like no, casually not. strolling towards the hut. <laughs> it's someone getting in there. Why are you getting in the way of my shot? Yeah. Good for you. We are done. La dee da dee da. It's Christian Bale. All right, Christian. Looking for a new script to do. <laughs> but the ending, I didn't get the ending when I first saw it. Mm. But it's clearly that Charlie has taken over the body of Peter and Jeannie or Joni or whatever the pensioner wants to call herself. She refers to. She refers to him as as Charlie. Don't be scared or something. But that's where it all starts to get a bit like, huh? Because if Charlie's in the body, where's Pyman? I thought Pyman and Charlie were essentially the same thing. But then if they're not the same thing, why would they just want Charlie in his body rather than Pyman? Well, maybe it's a two-headed serpent. Maybe Mm. Pyman has to be reborn into Charlie because Charlie is the most vulnerable or... Mm. also is this all just for them to get rich is it all just like a money-making scheme that's what i was thinking (laughs) because there's that hilarious photo of the grandma like sort of covered like throwing gold coins in the air looking really happy someone making it rain yeah i love that photo album like the exposition photo album (laughs) (laughs) there's thousands of photos of Joni that she's just never noticed before (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh yeah she did look familiar actually um yeah, are they are they just conjuring payment for selfish reasons? Yeah, like are they riches, doing it riches to the conjurer? To the conjurer, so yeah. So it's not even that payment or payment would get it; they'll get 
the money, he gets the glory. So have they just have they killed five, at least five people? They've killed Annie's dad. They've killed her brother Charles. They've killed Charlie. They've killed Gabriel Byrne. They've killed Annie. Possibly they've killed the pensioner's son and grandchild because and the drowned. pigeon. So that's and the pigeon. So there's six. Eight. <laughs> you've even got your fingers up and you still can't count <laughs> i'm really bad at maths um they Same, killed eight worry. seven humans one bird yeah Keep moving seven uh, <laughs> anyway. and however many more people what riches where is this money coming from and why the fuck are they all naked yeah what's paimon gonna do now now that he's king of the worlds or so he is mm. so he is um is so he, he is. So those people who believed in him and who kind of helped to bring him to the world, bring him into the world, they all get their gold coins and stuff and get really rich and blah, blah, blah. But what's he going to do? Is he going to go into the White House? And is this going to be the conj- like the Omen? Where it's the like the this whole film is actually just basically a prequel to the Omen. It's oh, like wow. a fucked up prequel to the Omen where now that the devil, like one of the kings of hell is here, what's he going to do? Is he going to go to the White House? fuck a jackal his mother was a jackal yeah is he just gonna like set up his own fast food chain and get rich that way or like what's he gonna do maybe now he's got physical form he can start building his army like yeah i think there's i think there's a really strong comparison and parallels with the witch robert eggers the witch yes oh god yeah which is also a24 a24 yeah uh, you've got a family in crisis you've got the girl of a family eventually being the only one to survive because charlie yeah. is reborn um the grief of losing someone from their family yeah the you know the the infighting the grief so at the end of that and film, the blame the blame as well yeah the bl- yes exactly the blame game um and it within the first act you have the death of one of the children which sparks mm-hmm. on the story but in that film the devil was the devil had taken um thomason thomason to be a witch so suddenly like he had deliciously <laughs> lovely butter I'm, I'm actually a vegan <laughs> you can have some margarine <laughs> i can't believe it's not butter <laughs> i'm actually lactose intolerant what <laughs> yeah. do you want is it gluten free <laughs> tell me what you fucking want do you want some lovely water? Is it Would you like a Mars bar? No, because I'm a vegan. Oh, fuck you. I'll go find some other bitch. <laughs> You're too much hard work. <laughs> you are hard work. Witches before bitches. <laughs> so he's building a witch army. Is that what Pyman's doing? Now he's got physical form. He can have more or it. They, that's not, that's not, that's not assume yeah. his gender, Joshua. I mean, they're definitely not gendered um, if it's a female. Definitely not gendered in a man's uh, body. Well, it's a, a female. Is this a trans film? Well, that yeah, there you go. That's the question. <laughs> yeah, that's the question, and I'm not going to be the one to answer. No, it. we're not going there. No, no, not, not going touching there. it with a barge pole. Not touching that one. It's a big <laughs> book of hot topics. <laughs> That was Hereditary, directed by Ari Aster. Joshua, give us a clue as to what comes up in the next episode. Oh, we're going to the land of the eternal sunshine. Sunny delight. (laughs) Going to go and get some sunny D and just turn orange. Delicious. Get some 
fucking Sony Delight. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. Joshua? And we are on the Twitter, at Pod. Um, did you have a weird experience watching Hereditary at the cinema or was it just me and the people that I know? <laughs> um, let us know and what do you think about Hereditary? Give us a tweet. We are off to a social event with all our friends and we are going to sprinkle gold coins on every one of them bitches. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>